0: From Loyola University School of Law and WLUW, this is The Podvocate, We're law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts and join us every Saturday evening at 6 p.m. on WLUW 88.7 Chicago. For more information about this episode and our guest, please visit our website at thepodvocate.com and check out our social media page. Peace, beloved listeners. I am your host today, Olivia Ashe, and I am excited for today's episode. I have the honor and privilege of speaking with the law school's incoming dean, Dean Michelle Alexandre. I'm excited that through our conversation, you'll get a taste of Dean Alexandre's infectiously beautiful spirit and her hopes for Loyola. Let's tune into our conversation. I came from a Jesuit undergrad at in Seattle, and so mm-hmm. thinking about law school and I'm also in Divinity School at Garrett Evangelical Northwestern's wow, campus. Wow, really? Yeah, so I was like, well, I need a place that's close by, a place that prob- that has some like concept of spirituality, even if the law school isn't super spiritual. So I was like, Loyola uh, would be a good fit, and it, it has been, I've been that's wonderful. blessed, yeah, so.
1: That's wonderful, that's a testimony right there.
0: But I wanna hear about you. Um, I want to hear about how you arrived to the legal field. And first, maybe start with, like, who's your community? Where do you come from? Tell us about your upbringing. Who are my people? Uh, yeah, who are your people? Exactly. <laughs> um, my people are, are multiple.
1: Um, and uh, I think about that a lot um, because I've been in the rooms where it's only me that looks like me for a very long time. But they are multiple and and. And contain multitudes. So I'm I'm of a slave um, tradition. If people um, know, and I know Chicago does, um, because it was you know it's credited to have a Haitian um, founder, uh, Jean Baptiste Point du Um But Haitian people come from uh, the tradition of knowing they were enslaved people, and that that what that means. So that means um, that they understand the transatlantic slave. Um, trade. They understand the impact it had on them and the regions and the rest of the Black diaspora that is taught to us. Um, and that they understand that at some point the people had to commit to figure out and imagine a way of being that was freer. It doesn't mean that they got to the ultimate freedom, the ultimate freedom within the construct of the political legacy that we inherited as as just the world that we are now. We're seeing that in, play out in in um this conflict that's happening um, between Ukraine and Russia that we all like praying for all involved. Right. Um And all the people that are really living the legacy of the world we inherited, the people are just living their lives. Right. But the political yeah. dynamics, the reshaping of the world, all of those things are things I learned from being um, a Haitian, Person being handed down that 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 lesson about who where we came from. So I really take pride in that, um, because that awareness that we came from a long line of people fighting for the um, f- freedom to be a person. That being a person is important. You know, you
0: mentioned being from a people who imagine. Could you talk a little bit about that? I know podcast listeners have heard me talk about legal imagination as something that's important to me. Uh, So I'd love to hear more about like, yeah, how that's formed you.
1: So like, uh, okay, we may go, but you're a spiritual person. So (laughs) you started this. Um, Yeah, take us there. Take us there. (laughs) Olivia started this. So if this turns you off and this is weird, just blame it on her. (laughs) um, So the imagination of Haitians, to imagine a world beyond us is something that I don't credit. It's just, I watch it everywhere I was. So it really impacted me a great deal. I come from, you know, seeing people dance and just taking, being taken out of their bodies and they were happy. They were transfixed because they were somewhere beyond the toils and tribulations of, um, of, of what they were living, right? What they were leaving is having to work 20 miles with a big, load on their head and just to get water and then in, you know, and then sell it, for example, or with big charcoal on their head or whatever they had to go, the good, the, the, the rare commodity they had to do to get so that they could make a few dollars to feed their family. But when they got in a space where they could imagine another way of being, their whole being were transformed and they broke their body into pieces to get, pay homage to being a human person on this planet experiencing things that only the spirit could 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 convey and not the, the the limited experience that humans try to translate. That really stayed with me because I saw it everywhere, in the streets at Carnival, I saw it in churches, you know, so I come from a Catholic tradition as well. And even in the churches, you could see that fervor that um is it's just that it's a form of humility. And a form of dignity that is given back um, to this um, kind of veneration of of the holy, and, and recognizing the holy could be among us at any point when we gather together to celebrate something beyond our bodies and our realities. Um, and I, so moving to the United States at um, a, a very young age, and and I, I came at high school age, I was 15. I recognized that in a Black tradition. That To me, that was my tradition. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, like the, the, the... And, of course, we studied about the African diaspora and the different freedom movements, very... um And, and, and what people were doing. We didn't, you know... I got in, in depth in it when I moved um, and started like, having teachers as mentors. It wasn't necessarily part of our curriculum, but I was very much... Um, um, lucky to 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 find teachers that would give us more than was already uh for and and you know and even I mean I, I have to give a shout out to Brooklyn. Brooklyn's curriculum was very rigorous and still introduced us to um having to know, um, you know, um, uh, African-American literature, having to know the Black Renaissance, um, the Harlem Renaissance, et cetera, um, as far as what they tested on. So, you know, so having had teachers who introduced me to these books also made me recognize that legacy that I grew up with in those writings uh, made me recognize, you know, that legacy in hip hop music, because they were imagining something beyond their reality. And I was living in the project. So I understood that, <laughs> you know, it resonated because I knew, I knew those faces, I knew those those songs that you may define me as that, but what I am is beyond. So I'll stop there, because I know that um, I've, I learned more, much more. Listening to what y'all living to in yeah. this time, um, but I just wanted to share that little piece of who my people are. Who my people are is, is where I consider myself Haitian American, um, because I was shaped so much by being in the United States as much as I was shaped by the fifteen years that I, that I, that that you know that led me to 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 here, right? My first fifteen years years in the United States, so all of the pieces continued here, and with more. Um, thankfully um, um, being granted more people to like guide me through more, more safety, relatively speaking from what I was living and et cetera. So um, um, being steep into um, the black tradition in the United States is very important to me um, being, you know, of international um, uh, bent, right. That I'm also a, uh, we, I feel I think we all children and and citizen of the world, but that's how I live my my life because that's been my reality. Um, You know, I think your listeners may understand, especially when you decide to commit yourself to the law, that at some point you understand the ways in which law is inclusive, but also has a lot of work to do. Um, And in that sense, you become a citizen of the global world, because in order to make equity and justice, you have to imagine a world beyond what law says it is, because we make up the law. And our our imagination then is required in in learning from all aspects of both your live global realities, but the evolving realities that have given birth. To other things like in South Africa, right, their constitution. You become a student and a citizen of the world in that way. Um, So beyond my background, my my love for justice has made me want
0: to learn more about everybody and everywhere, no matter what. That is beautiful. Um, I'm so curious, from Haiti to Brooklyn, what was the path that said like, okay, yeah, I'm going to go to law school. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a part of the legal community. You mentioned your love for justice, but there's, is there a particular moment that you can identify?
1: You know, I was in Catholic school because the, the order that was in Haiti, um, had been there for decades. And one of their work, uh, you know, they created schools where they raised money from the folks that could afford it. But what they did, it was trying to create a path for, um, parents who could not afford it for their kids to be able to attend. So they had a competition, for example, the school, the particular school I went through, but even the elementary school really did do that as well. So, but at some point we entered, like I entered a competition to measure my curricular acumen. And then I was able to go to that school. It was a very um, competitive, critical type of um, curriculum. And so that combined with when I was a child being in the grade school of Catholic school, where you get learning about Catechism, right? Um, And the Catechism, even though it was really kind of part of what you would do in Catholic school, it came with enough critical information to make a child wonder, huh, wow, wow the world is supposed to be like this, but this is what I'm seeing. So I do credit that. I was, you know, I started at like early, maybe four or five, right? With my parents making four or five. Yeah. Going to school. I was an early bird to school. And I, I I do think, I remember, I think you you were wondering earlier, I don't, I don't know many <laughs> Catholic folks who do not go to that. And you would never guess it in my current, like, adult being but that teaching is enough to tell you to ask you how are you going to serve and one of the ways that you you often think about it because the people you are around you see them as serving you ask yourself at some point some people do should I also be a nun should I also commit my life you know what I mean it's the same way you calling you call to being a teacher a preacher. Uh, and I think teaching is a service. It ends up being a way you call to being a teacher, right? So um, so I do remember the time when I asked myself that I may have been, it may have been when I was getting ready for my first communion. Um, and so I may have been eight-ish, right? Where I said, oh, is this what service should look like? I admired what they were doing. And it wasn't without critical evaluation. Um, very early, I realized that, you know, institutions can be prey to all of the political dynamics that you witness in your country. And I was taught to be very critical of political structures as a, as a child, as a Haitian person, because the political political structure did not match live realities and mm-hmm. were very oppressive. So you learned that very early. So folks on that parade institutional operate, and I could understand that um, over time and still I think Have the impact of that education still lead me to service. So, what happened is, I think, latently in me, like implicitly in me, was always this idea of what, so, what are you gonna do? (laughs) And I I think I agonized over it over time because, you know, I was really into discourse and opening the way, you know, thinking through things. Um, And that's why I migrated towards teaching first. As my service, so my my mentors in college from Brooklyn, all of them were leading me that they f- they fed me books as, foo- as food. Um, it was like contraband of books to, <laughs> I love to the that. curriculum I was getting. And then in college, it becomes more apparent that they felt that. And of course, when you get that kind of mentorship and they trust you to teach their course, and you. Love it. Then I think it gets you on that path. Law school came as an extension of that. Like, how do I amplify my call to service? And to me, they merged because I knew I could do continue the teaching part, but then learn more about society and law in order to figure out uh, what my what my impact will be or how I serve. So my trying to figure out how I serve is probably similar to your listeners. I think it's always evolving. It's never like you feel like you've achieved it. You're always trying to figure out how can I be of service today? I definitely feel during the pandemic, we were called to a higher level of service that than then we thought we had right, so it wasn't like the the levels change, but we were reminded there's this higher level that we're supposed to be at all the time, um, and it it I think you would probably talk to a lot of people like people folks that you know in your you know either training to be preachers or current preachers who would probably tell you similarly that the call to service. Um and it is always being redefined and 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 um deepened as you live more, right,
0: yeah, yeah, that resonates with me so much thinking about my role in law as a call to service. I mean, particularly, yeah, I remember being in church and being so, and all. obviously if you had my dad and my, and my mom who were preachers, but of like the deacons who were serving the people in a different way or who were making sure that those who were speaking had water or mints or, you know, whatever it was mm-hmm. to make sure that they could show up as them as their best selves. Um, and wow. then going into the community and saying, "Okay, how do we serve the community?" So that makes that just resonates with me so much. Really, drawing on the language of like, what does it mean to serve? And I and I heard you use that language, and I think I don't know if it was um, a talk you gave to to pre law students or something, uh, but you used the the language of service, and I was like, "Oh yeah, these, this is this is this is one of my people." If they're think, if thinking thinking <laughs> about thinking about uh, yeah, our role as a, as, as lawyers. Um, as one that's in service.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it's a it it. Make sure you stay grounded. It's not easy, right? We all mm-hmm. have to meditate our way to remind ourselves of our core and who we really are, which is who we are is has nothing to do with our titles or what we do or what people call us. Who we are is what's inside, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the confirmation that we get to keep going every day and not give up is because internally we can confirm with with whatever this greater um, being is, you know, whether we call it the universe or God or a higher power, whatever you call it, if you believe in that, yeah. Um, connecting to that, the greater source, and then saying, no, I, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep doing this. So it's humbling, though, because right? it has nothing to do with us. It's,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? I, I say that all the time. The call of my life has absolutely nothing to do with me. Like but it has everything Real to do essence. with Yeah. Exactly. With that greater whatever it is. Yeah, you call it divine, mother, spirit, earth, tree, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, mountain. There's there's something higher that's happening. Um and yeah, how humbling it is to be like one small piece of that greater picture. Yeah.
1: Small, but powerful because everything that's happened and then you know we go back to how we started this conversation everything that's happened in the world that's worth um noticing that has been for the benefit of us and communities has happened because of the collection of those small forces bending together and connecting like they should into a greater force every single thing
0: and when it doesn't happen it has been to our destruction Right. And when it doesn't happen, it's been to our destruction. Oh, okay. Uh, we might have to have a different conversation at a different time on the podcast about, I want to go into this deeper, but I also, I imagine uh, our listeners are getting a a really good understanding of, of who you are as I am just listening to your words um, and they can't see your face, but I'm looking at your face and seeing the intention and, and spirit that's really illuminating this conversation. Um and I want to get a little bit more into uh kind of your work as a teacher, a lawyer, an author um an educator, um and just kind of hear about you know where did you begin uh your practice in law and uh what lessons did you learn as you were moving um through your legal career
1: It's an interesting thing, so um i i'll 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 briefly just kind of highlight um. Something I'm grateful for, which is in my career, I've been able to stay close to the ground and to the to what I feel like is my roots, which is like, you know, working class, poor folk, um, you know, whatever gradation you call it, right? Our world is divided into really all of us trying to you know, fend for for our kids and for our communities, for your parents, right? Many of us are caring for parents and elders as well as small, or caring for ourselves and our friends. We're not without uh, obligations. All of us have obligations, and people we love, and um, and those um, who have those obligations and are torn, the, you know, that's even more difficult, right? Um, when the environment is not healthy. So um, I, I'm thankful that in my career, I knew I wanted to teach, and I knew I wanted to um, also get get experience. And, and it was sharp that I needed to get experience in civil rights, because in law school, I was exposed to civil rights enough to know that that needed to be my path. But so I've gotten, you know, in, in so I started out by doing the things that um, our career services advise. So, um, your listeners may know that I still kind of advocate for you to try different careers because <laughs> I learned a lot from them that um, even though you might not decide to go into the big firm, if you think you want to try to get some experience, that experience won't go away. It'll be valuable at any point, but you don't have to st- try a big firm. Any practical experience I think is valuable. And so clerking, or a federal judge helped me that. It doesn't have to be a federal judge or could be a state judge or clerking with someone of experience, you know, who, have a, who has a long kind of um, length of time in the business, usually helpful. We, don't, we, we underestimate how young uh, in practice we are when we get out of law school, no matter how many clinics. And thankfully I did, the Legal Aid Bureau, definitely part of what shaped mm-hmm. me. Um, so clinics, are, I do recommend. We have a requirement for experiential learning in law school. Um, those are those really add up and, and make you more prepared. But teaching and learning, remember law, lawyering used to be that you literally learn in apprenticeship. That apprenticeship is still necessary. You do not come out of law school knowing everything. That flexibility of mind, that kind of doggedness that you need to keep track of things. Apprenticeship really helped hone that that in. So clerking helped me do that. Then I went to um, a big law firm. That was really helpful, right? To be a small in a big C, to be doing big deals. And then, you know, lowly associates were doing document review. It still presented a connecting world to, for me in real estate that, that influenced my approach to um, you know, looking at eminent domain, to looking at property law, to looking at constitutional issues and intersecting and, and with the poor and how placement and displacement in communities and urban, you know, all of that, I wouldn't have guessed, but seeing the kind of you know, corporate deal making of, of neighbor um, that impact the structure, the commercial structure of neighborhoods that really shaped me. And then, of course, I went to civil rights practice. So when I went to civil rights practice, that was like the fire hoses of practice. There's not really a civil rights practice. That's like, you know, chill. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, what, what the experience that I got um, was that it was a actually a, a nice-sized law firm, and it was one of the first um, African-American law firm in in, the, in Alabama doing that work, was that we had more clients than we could handle. And those clients, right, our civil rights clients typically cannot, like, they don't do retainers. You, you, you you work on contingency and you work to make new law. So two goals, you take cases that you won't get paid for. And of course you gotta, you you gotta, um, it's a business. And um, so you take also cases hoping you could mediate or um, win in a way that you can share um, costs because the clients don't pay anything in advance. Um, The workload was intense because, you know, so that's why, again, going to a big firm forever long, helps you with those hours, right, you have to put in because right. the stakes are higher because you're irresponsible. You sleep those cases. And my criminal law folks, my partners, they were even more, right, prey to kind of the relentlessness of representing um and having that docket that you are responsible. These are the people's lives, right? You can't run to a partner for that. They can, you know, give you some insight, but everybody's busy and everybody's like working really hard. So that, that the most memorable thing from that practice, you know, besides, you know, the kind of excitement of being part of the black farmer's case as a baby, tiny, tiny lawyer. and then um, And then when I was fully in academia, you know, well-seasoned. I joined again to help with the second iteration of the Black Farmers' lawsuit, and I can tell you more about that. But I can. What I want to leave the the listeners with is the image of having um, factory workers drive um, all the way from the other side of Alabama. They would drive three hours, four hours. To come to a law firm, and you know, and I would be one of the attorneys taking their case because I was actually the one doing employment discrimination for the most part, um, while others, you know, other fields um, were focusing. And I worked with, you know, under the um, advising and, and mentorship of this big um, uh, stalwart for civil rights um, at the law firm. Um, but having the the clients come and you know, they want to talk about the unfairness. They want to talk about the indignity, right, right? Of being relegated to these jobs where they can't earn anything. Um. You know, being treated as as really less than because only black. You know, you have these civil rights Title VII cases, and other cases. In in when I teach civil rights. We you know, I highlight these kind of massive cases where it was kind of a recipe. All of the workers were black. Right. You know, they were in the menial job and everybody else had the other jobs. And, you know, at the beginning it was so prevalent that supreme court would just look at that and say, come on, you know, you can't tell me. And then over time, like law does, they um they asked for more cause causal relationship because that immediate kind of you know glaring problem did not present itself in the same way. Right. You had more nuances because um the labor force had caught up with the fact right. that the court would look at it and if you didn't make any effort um it would find um disparate impact. Um so but though but the the thing that I was taught in those conversations that I try to remember is that you can't lecture people on what the law is. You can't just try to explain the law to them. Yeah, there's a time for that. You can prepare them for deposition. You can do all of that. The prior thing I had to learn, and I remember talking to a colleague, right? <laughs> um, and that that kind of drove home. And, uh, you know, that colleague had been in Alabama all his life. And, um, and he just, you know, I learned a slice of wisdom from him. And it was just like, you know what they want to do is share the experience with you, absolutely, and he and have a human person understand mm-hmm. and feel the pain they are feeling beyond whether they can win in court. Right. Yeah. So there's a time, perhaps, to explain how hard it is to win these cases if you don't have, if you don't, you know, the expert. If you know you don't have the documents, right, which is usually how uh, these cases fail. But what they were coming by the 12 and 20 and sitting in my office was to hear someone witness the indignities they were experiencing, Mm -hmm. that we know are wrong, regardless of what law ends up finding. So that was a huge lesson for me. And that helped me just always remember, no matter how busy you are, you know, and sometimes it's not right in the moment, but that voice comes back and then I come back and, and, and and we... remember that lesson and try to implement it. No matter how busy you are, acknowledging the person's experience and and validating it uh, for what they are experiencing is is just pivotal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And that reminds me of some of the experiences I've had in law school. I got to work in like a mediation clinic. And so we were mediating small claims and all kinds of things. A lot of it was, you know, kind of interpersonal conflict. This person took something from me or they didn't pay their mm-hmm. rent or, or things of that nature. But more than however much money they would get or whatever agreement they would sign, it was like, I want you to know that you hurt me and I want I want to be heard. I want to know that yeah. when you didn't show up to our meeting for our kids' uh, teacher conference that I felt alone. It was like really realizing that more than anything, lawyers are and should be that, like, that an opportunity for someone to to be heard. It's like counseling. Again, I go back to like my pastoral roots, right? When someone's sitting in that chair and you're counseling them, it's like, I want to be heard. And I guess there's no coincidence that lawyers are often called counselors, right? Like, (laughs) uh, because there is that that skill of listening and recognizing people's hurt or pain uh, for whatever it is they're bringing to you.
1: Yeah, and that's actually, you know, the law has evolved. When I was in law school, mediation and getting two years was kind of hip. <laughs> you had to, to read that, that book. Right. Yeah, that was a great book. And, um, uh, you know, again, one of those things that you never know how it will integrate and make you who you are, but definitely did because it was part of our training in Legal Aid Bureau um, to make sure that we we understood the process of getting people to the table rather than try to think about the adversarial nature of it, um, which there's a place for that. But courts are requiring that we do this, and mediation is like one of the most popular tools that we have in our field. So the lawyer as counselor is instrumental. You know, we're thinking about war right now, right? We're, we're hoping we're not, at, you know, having a protracted war. But if you think about humanitarian law. There's a great piece I teach in international law, which is the lawyer, the role of law in humanitarian law. And it's literally the lawyer, international lawyer, the military lawyer, as counselor to the troops, to the, you know, power, the power makers, in order to get everybody to see um, some of the ways that, in which decisions may have um, uh, impact that they may not um, be able to live with if they stay on just their perspective. And I think it's it's an important reminder for what we do and our value to society.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm also, I describe myself as an abolitionist, so I'm also think always thinking about what's going to be the roles of lawyers, right? When there aren't prisons or there aren't uh, other systems that, you know, obviously, if you have a prosecutor's office, to fill that prosecutor's office, you have to have lawyers, right? So, like, lawyers are still a part of, like, this to me, ever-going system that's not always um, producing positive things. But thinking about, like, yeah, if lawyers really hone in on, like, we have skills as counselors, as diplomats, as listeners, as people who can articulate and bridge gaps, like, that's a role for lawyers, even outside of um, the current court system, which is often very adversarial and doesn't always bring justice. But I think that's, yeah, an important piece is like, okay, what's what can we use these skills for besides adversary? So I,
1: I think one way to think about it, and no matter where you land on these issues, um, and I, I think there's a healthy conversation that's being had right now across generations. And it's probably important to know that even in the civil rights community, not everybody You know, like not everybody sees it in the same way. Absolutely. One thing I think lawyers have in common that if we could lean in on it, I think we'll, we would appreciate each other more. I do, (laughs) I do think a joke with my first years about, you know, how we need to reclaim being a lawyer, like it's a pretty cool thing to be doing. We certainly work long enough, right? <laughs> uh, but we we kind of shy away. We don't we don't like own it or think about it as a noble profession. And I think it is. It doesn't mean that just like any profession, that there might not be things to improve. But it is a noble profession because um, what we do is contribute to society. So the short way I think about it is that lawyers are builders, right? It's different from any other field where you may have to take something out or um, you know, destroy something in order for something to happen. We are charged with building from the system that we have, whether it's reforming it, whether thinking about a way to create a whole new one, we build. And that's a quiet, um, exciting job to have because we're always thinking ahead and thinking about all of the things, all the tools we need, all the steps we need to take in order to have
0: the complete structure that we're trying to build. I love that. I love that. And I'm excited that that's your perspective, particularly coming into Loyola, because I'm curious, too, like how, you know, the faculty and students get to build off of imagining their profession their as as something that builds. Right. I think that's a very exciting A metaphor, but one that can actually, you know, if we're tethered, if we're tethered to something, what can come of that? Lawyers as builders. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. So if you think about Loyola Law, what attracted
1: me is that I saw so many kind of um, already foundations that already are have been tested, right? So that's exciting to me. Um, The strategic plan and the um, uh, approach to the curriculum, uh, y'all have already been in in real um, intentional conversation and, and, and are intentional about the steps or implementation so that anyone coming in will be building, right? That's why I was asking you about the connection between you graduating and, and the students coming uh, because it's, it's really, there are things we, we, we create with each other and we give credit to those who came. And so I think what I'm, the reason I'm saying this is that I really always want to resist the urge of thinking that there's a magic bullet that one person can fix because we all work in collaboration with each other. It is tempting though, right? We're like, oh, can somebody come and fix this and we all can fix it i mean and, and someone can you know there is such a thing as inspiring and having someone whose only job right the dean to think through and you know but the dean cannot do anything alone is and we all know that um and so what excites me is that this culture this community that loyola is is already in that mode of, of acknowledging those who came, right you, you the community is old enough, but also is vibrant in trying to think about where else to go what are, what are the other what makes us us right? who are our people? what Who else is our people? You know what I mean? Loyola's asking those questions, which is very galvanizing and I know the students care about it. I know the faculty and staff and alumni are eager to engage with it. And so someone uh, can come in, right? I see uh, the excitement of coming in and building on all that, and asking the questions with you to figure out how what's our next phase.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. And I have to, you know, just shout out Dean Zelda Harris, current interim dean, and um, other deans like Josie Goff and Dean Kaufman and uh, absolutely uh, Mary Bird and Chipo. Everyone. Um, who's really been pushing yeah, pushing, yeah, pushing Loyola to be who we say we are. Um, and that's not an easy fret and, and still leaving room for us to figure it out along the way. They're mm-hmm. not saying this is who we are and we know who mm-hmm. it is, but they're, they're, they've been really curating a container for conversation. Um, and I'm so excited yeah. for you to step that- into that container and further it and push us farther absolutely agree I, I would
1: lift them up because they without that we wouldn't have this have, we wouldn't be having this conversation without their work without the vision it's an amazing thing to come into a, 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 to actually see a, a, a movement that is happening in cohesion you can tell when a movement is happening in cohesion when there's still fraction. It's, so there's always a lot of work to do but to just see that intentionality that is a result of the building that everyone, including your amazing dean um, Dean Harris, has been doing, including um, Dean Kaufman, who I've had the pleasure to talk to, including everyone, including your your faculty is amazing. Yeah, they love to talk about you, the students, and what they want to continue to. Create with you mm-hmm. um, that intentionality, that you know the fact that the alums love you in the community. Those are treasures that I yeah. think anybody is fortunate to to walk into.
0: Yeah, yeah it it's a it's a special place, Loyola. Definitely not perfect by any means, but it is a special place. I think for for the reasons. So you tell
1: mentioned. me more. This is what intrigues me. I yeah, got, I got the sense that. Right. Because, I mean, you can diagnose, but you don't really know until you're there. So I am really looking forward to making Loyola Law my home. Mm-hmm. I, when I, what I share with everybody is that what interests me at this stage of my career is a home. Mm. Um, you know, I, yeah. um, I, have a, I have a daughter, I have a six year old daughter. Um, I have um, a, a caretaker, Vicky, um, who is a co-parent with me. She, you know, Vicky Ishe, my mother, is visits me every month and stays for weeks and end. So right she's going to she be helped. coming to visit so, Chicago. Yeah, she's yep, going okay. to Chicago. We had to get her blessing in order to move. <laughs> um, so I have a community of people whose whole focus is to try to create a healthy home for my daughter. I'm very, I feel very fortunate. So they are in the conversation and they are looking for, you know, Loyola as a home, because we could see all of the roots. But it, it, it's even more powerful to hear, because I do hear that. Loyola is a special place. I love hearing that, because it it, has, it contains so much. It says so much about the relationships that you all have created here.
0: And that's it exactly. Um, it's the relationships for me that I built at Loyola, the faculty, the administration, the students. I can't say enough about, um, you know, the three short years, and uh, two of them, unfortunately, were mostly inside of my own uh, home because of the pandemic, but that first semester, so I had one semester in Portland, I mean, sorry, I'm living in Portland, now. I had one semester uh, in Chicago in person, um, and it only took that one semester to become meaningfully attached to friendships and relationships that Mm -hmm. I know are going to not just serve me, but be an important part of my life uh, for the many years to come. And I think that's special, right? Uh, Law school can be an intimidating place, especially for folks who didn't have or don't have other lawyers uh, Mm -hmm. in in their family line, folks who maybe didn't grow up with a particular kind of wealth. Um, right there's like all this tension and the cold calling and the books that you did or didn't read and um I didn't have that the many many pages right the many pages you know (laughs) the pretending that you read all of those AP books uh in high school (laughs) etc right like those are all the, the things that come with law school particularly uh for black women um for myself but being able to find folks who are also tethered to the earth. I think some of my early friends and who are still friends today also like got masters in religion and were scientists oh, wow. and are drummers um, in bands and were school teachers in Chicago. Um, and so all wow. of those having folks with all of those experiences, right, really colored uh, my initiation into law school. It's like, oh, this is a place where I can be and I can fit in. Um, Can be unique and and still find your people. Exactly, exactly. Um, And I wish that for you know all the future Loyola students to come. And I am excited that uh, with you joining our law school that I I can feel that that tradition will hopefully continue. And that that is certainly one of my prayers uh, for Loyola and, and for your time. That it's also you know a home, as you said, for your family and that your daughter and mother and. All the other folks feel held uh, by the school yeah, as they'll well. they'll get to know all the communities and all their beautiful
1: differences and, and um, similarities. I um, I do wish that for our students. So I'm glad that I'm. It's, it's just such a testimony to hear that you found that even in your first semester. That is very hard to do in law school. Law school is a, you know, as much as we've been intentional about it, I think we better. In legal education, but it's still a pretty rough um, first semester for folks. So it is a testament to Loyola Law that you had such a great first semester. And my hope is, and my dedication is to making sure that we all work together to make to for the students' experience and the community's experience to be as rich and rewarding. Doesn't mean we won't disagree. It doesn't mean it won't be hard. We have learned over the last three years that we cannot control everything. And that is one quality (laughs) I think law students and law aspiring people and lawyers have that is hard to accept. Now, if we honest with each other, we will tell all of the truth. And the truth (laughs) is... Law attracts people who like to control things a bit. Mm -hmm. You know, we like to plan things are in order just so. And we had to, you know, let go a bit and accept that we can, we have to trust each other more. Mm -hmm. And that there are some things we won't have the answer to, like the pandemic. Right? How many times have we asked ourselves, when will this be over? When can I get back in school? And we've had different answers that said not yet. And we didn't love it. Um, or, um, you know, watching the world change in front of our eyes and not yeah. be able to stop it um, and then figure out our place in it. Those are things that are challenging, but what I know for a fact is that when we've created a community where we can all say those things to each other and a- and ask ourselves what can we do, right, to help support each other, What, how can we acknowledge the things we can't change, and work together on the things we can, then we found our community. So I, I do hope, um, and, and um, my prayer always is that we all every day come to work with that as a goal. And then, you know, the days become months and the months become yeah. years where we are, you know, helping to provide that in collaboration with our students throughout the classes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Loyola, yeah. Like any institution, not perfect by any means, but I always challenge folks in the communities I'm in, like, are you willing to stick around long enough to see where the community can fill the gaps of our brokenness? And I think your call right there, like, how can we show up for each other and how can we show up for ourselves when... Not only can we not control everything, we really can't control anything if we're being entirely honest, right? Like, so how do we show up? And that being probably one of the biggest lessons of life is how do you continue to show up even when you don't have control? Um, yeah. Control might be an mm-hmm. illusion. That, that's that's what I would say. But uh, well, it, it, it really <laughs> is. But, you know, don't tell that to all the <laughs> lawyers now. Let's,
1: let's give some reassurance to <laughs> people. <laughs> you can control something you, you can study something. you know all that right, things right. you can control right but right, ultimately right. we do have to give ourselves yeah. the, the knowledge that when things happen you know we get help
0: mm-hmm. we talk
1: it out we try to plan and then really at yeah. the bottom of it identify the things we have to let go in yeah. order to make a new world
0: right and right. it's
1: an exciting time we are creating a new world and it's as scary for all of us because we don't know what that new world is None of us know what actual post this moment is, right? So we know not to use post pandemic because there's no such thing, right? It's us after the the, the heat of the pandemic is has somewhat subsided. Yeah. And we don't quite know that. We hopeful that it's starting now, but we don't. Yeah. Um we now, like I've conditioned myself to not talk about normal because there's you know there's no return to what we were. We different people and it's actually very freaky to kind of even test that on ourselves, right? Yeah. Are we the same people as two years ago? We are not. Who are we now? Mm-hmm. Right. And and how have we watched that evolution? I bet you if we were asked, I would I would challenge our readers and and our listeners, right, our, our listeners, right. Or um, I challenge our listener because that's something I've been thinking a lot about. Let's write a, a two three paragraphs on what you watch yourself evolve into in the last two and a
0: half years can I ask you that that very question what have you of watched course, I just said you that you walked into that one what did you watch what have you watched yourself evolve into and I can answer it too so you you don't have to be alone in this one yeah
1: no no yeah it's it's uh, that's I think that's why I'm so interested in that question. This is probably, and I, I will just admit that a lot of it probably is age. Approaching your 50s is way different than being 25 and 20. I mean, you we, change is endless. So, but one of the things that the benefit that you get when you get older is watching the evolution happen in real time. So it's some form of awareness, right? That you don't have when when you like feeling praise. Praise. So, I think, and I thought I was pretty aware, but I think I saw an evolution where I was commended, (laughs) forced to develop some skills where I could be more aware in real time and become more in sync. And I say more, it's an evolving thing and, you know, if I'm fortunate enough to live in the in the next 10 years, in 10 years, I, I really I now have the <laughs> you know re, reality that I'll be somebody different. But that awareness of um evolving as a person. Yeah. And verifying the core of who you are, right? We talked about some of the core, right? Being called to service, but I really do believe that's a human experience,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Being called to connect, I believe that's eternal and universal to all of us. But when the pandemic happened and um, you know, and I wasn't distraught in the same way where I was crying or anything, I felt like it was a call to service, but that wasn't good enough to whoever was commending me. Um, what was, what was what was needed was for me to ask, what is the nature of that call, right? What did it mean to be of service in this time? And I needed to become a more aware person spiritually. So that meant that I had to go back and figure out what what my spiritual core really was and not shy away from some of the things that were part of me because of my dislike of political things, and you know what I mean, or you know the theories, exactly, <laughs> and really get stripped down to the core essence of, of my and and I think that allowed me to you know just accept a bit more myself as a spiritual being and, and and embrace it, and then committing to learn and submit to what it might mean, and that's still evolving. Yeah, but but I I, I've, I really i'm thankful right that the call to service has also merged into an awareness that serving without a spiritual core for me um would be too, would would be too disjointed and would not be who i am so that serving with a spiritual core and being aware enough to know when uh, that i need to continuously be learning and relearning and be open to what that means that means talking to everybody learning from other spiritual traditions always being a student that that is what i'm called to be
0: that's beautiful that's beautiful i think so much of that resonates with me for my own answer to the question um my wife and i decided uh, for this final year of law school, I was able to really finish online. So we're living in Oregon right now on a mountain, on a farm. Um, Which is a beautiful state. It sounds it is like beautiful.
1: You're, it you're is really beautiful. surrounded by peace.
0: Yeah. And it was, um yeah, that kind of coming home to, I'm originally, well, from Seattle and Chicago, but my roots in the Pacific Northwest in many ways. So coming back home to the Pacific Northwest and putting my feet in the soil, I think, mm. um, And that being a part of this particular moment of evolution for me, like returning to the soil, returning to growing our food and catching our water and tending to the animals. And I've seen the way that this new lifestyle is informing how I do law school, right? And how Mm. I show up um, and how I think about my next steps in my job. And so really just basking in, yeah, this moment to be, just to be. I think more than anything, right? Like in, during the pandemic, we're, we're at home, some of us with family, some of us alone or whatnot, but really in a container with less people than we probably are used to having in our everyday life. And yeah. what that requires of us to be in our bodies and our minds, or not wanting to be in our bodies and our minds because so much comes up. Um, so I think that- to be it. present. And to be present, right. Like this is definitely an interesting evolutionary moment to be present, but also right to be steeped in this virtual world. So I'm I'm not I'm not missing kind of that uh the duality of that right like the pandemic's calling us to be present, but also to be on screens more. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's kind of that tension. But I think for myself, I've been um, yeah I've been called to be more more connected to the earth in particular?
1: I think the pandemic's, um, schism, you know, schism that the pandemic created maybe a force, those priorities. I mean, we know that the labor force has experienced that kind of reassessment. Some of my economists' friends are calling it the great reassessment, which is, uh, you know, people deciding what's important and what being present for themselves and their family really means. So in a way, you know, that evolution I'm describing is not unique to any one individual. It, it is the moment. And this is where I draw hope. You know, I've been really kind of thinking through, you know, just the terror that hearing about countries fighting can cause for all of us, especially when we have people who are impacted in our communities. So, and whether or not this has caused you know, could you know, you start despairing. We thought like we've learned so so many lessons. We just ended a war, for example. Um, but you know, if you look at the intentionality of the conversations around us, and and what we are choosing to do, and the acknowledgement, again, it's not perfect, but we are evolving. My source of hope is that we are evolving into a different version, right? A, a version, at least for the most part, where we would rather peace than war. The fact that we can all like feel that pull collectively, that we don't want this. Now it doesn't mean that we haven't control over politics and decisions and global landscape, but human to human, people to people, we'd like shelter for those in, in harm's way. We like we want children to be safe. We want peace. In, within communities. And it's a long trajectory to that. But there were times where war was more commonplace. And that collective desire may not have been as felt as much. So that's a source of hope for me that we are dropping into the collective, you know,
0: to be furthered beyond us after we're gone. But we are. Exactly. I feel like we could talk forever. I know this is probably just the beginning of what I hope is a. Uh, relationship and community with you. Um, But I wanted to do something that I've seen uh, Oprah do on her podcast is she'll just list words and whatever comes to mind. So I have a few words for you just to kind of end our time together. Um, Yeah. So whatever comes to mind, it could be a sentence or less. Uh, The first word is justice. Children, future, Legal imagination. We building spirit. Freedom. Law. Work. (laughs) Love. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation.
1: It was a pleasure. You are a, a just shining light, a, a true star. Please keep in touch. I hope graduation day is not the last time we'll talk. Uh, I have a feeling it won't be. Thank it you. Thank be. you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and to your listeners, thank you.
0: Listeners, that's all from us here at The Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Visit our website at thepodvocate.com. For more information on this episode and our special guest. The Podvocate is produced by WLUW, the student-run independent radio station broadcasting from the School of Communications at Loyola University, Chicago. Our senior editors are myself, Olivia Ashe, Emma Harrington, and Lenny Reinhardt. Our associate editors are Christy Paredes and Marissa Polowitz. Our editor-in-chief is Leanne Johnson. Special thanks to Professor John Dean for providing the resources and support to make this show possible. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.